The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit waxing your Prius and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 460 with guest Scott Ambler, recorded live Monday, June 29th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who thinks the world would be a safer place if the Iranian president would just chill to some Lady Gaga. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here, Rich Campbell out there in Vancouver. It's Thursday. We are ready to rock. Yes, indeed. I love a Thursday show. Dude, I tell you what. I got this little device that I told you about on Tuesday. Uh-huh. That, uh sings with you it's like a singing box yeah 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 you plug a guitar into it you plug a microphone in it and it's got stereo mic outputs so you plug it into your sound system like a regular microphone and then as you play uh it has a toggle switch on it and as you play like a c chord and then you sing a c it's going to give you a harmony above and a harmony below as you sing and as you change chords you can sing the same note and the harmonies change to match the chord you're playing wow What's, what I didn't tell you about it is that there are some design flaws. Oh, no. <laughs> design flaw number one. There's a button very close to the preset button, which someone might push during the setup or sound check while messing around with this thing to test it out. But the button is a built-in demo. Now, what was, would be the user interface for a demo? That's right. It goes out through the PA. Welcome to the fabulous new gizmo designer for blah, blah, blah. Hey. And this hey. big booming voice and everybody in the bar is turning and looking at me. And, am I, and I press it again. It doesn't shut off. <laughs> 
So what? you learned this the hard way, did you? Oh my god, I had to lean over to the board and pull the faders down. So next That's design funny. flaw is the toggle switch. You know, it's a little toggle switch. You step on it with your foot to break to put the harmonies in. You know, right? Well, if you hold that down for a second, a whole second, it goes into tuner mode and shuts off. Like your guitar, you can't you play your guitar through it or two, right? Right. So your guitar just stops. Wow. Yeah, your voice stops. Everything stops. So bad design. I'm not even going to bring up the brand now because I just don't want to embarrass them. But, I mean, great idea, great product, great technology. When it works, it works awesome. Well, it does work. You just – but the design – but, you know, again, it comes back to design. And I thought about that in terms of software development too, how you can have the most brilliant, amazing technology in the world. But if your users can't use it – doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how much we 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 spend on UI design and app design, and and then you go out into the world and find really bad design. That's right. That's right. You go to some place like Mix, and you see all these great user interfaces and stuff, and then in the real world, it's like, oh no, we can't afford an architect. Yeah, you know. But even not even on software, I, I I picked up an iron and and you know I was trying to set to cotton, but it didn't say cotton anywhere on it. It had a series of totally undecipherable symbols. I'm like, huh. this iron, crappy UI. Yeah. How am I going to understand? Now i got to understand your symbols. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's uh, jump into Better Know Framework. So, Richard, how many times have you been sitting at home on your cable modem and you're running some sort of uh, uh, system and all of a sudden you things stop working and they stop working because your ISP just gave you a new IP address. Uh, that never happens to me. I have redundant internet connections. Yeah, but you have an interesting thing, though, because you have both a DSL or two DSL connections that you used to anyway have this thing that just sends out. Automatically switches. Automatically yeah. switches. So I am not normal. I admit that. Yeah. So all of a sudden your, your, your state might go away. You know, that yeah, kind of absolutely. Problem. I've had weird experiences. Well, it's always spooky to have your machine tell you. Oh, by the way, you, your one of your connections is down. I know you can't tell it's just working, but one of your connections is down. So there is a class in the framework called oh. the System .net .information .network Change class, huh. which allows applications to receive notification when the Internet Protocol address IP address of a network interface changes. Interesting. So your app can respond to the fact that, well, how do you connect up to it? Is it like an event handler? It's an object with an event handler. It has oh. an address changed callback, you know, and then you can just uh, get all network interfaces from uh, as an array of adapters. And you can go through those and you can look at the name and the operational status of each of them. Cool. Yeah. Isn't that neat? That's very interesting. Yeah. So it'd be at least the app there's not if you've lost your state you've lost your state but at least the app knows yeah at least the app knows at least it can you know pause until your ip address comes back around again or something and right do whatever you do need to do to uh address that issue yeah yeah there it is cool so you got an email for us i do indeed let me read it to you we had a bunch of emails around that show we did in uh in oslo with sahil remember yeah that was great yeah, uh, we had a lot of fun with the show. No two ways about it. Uh, Sahil's a funny guy. Yeah, he is. But uh, let me read this email. Smart Guys, too. great show. I do have to share with you a pain that many consultants find with regards to the X64 challenge or 64-bit challenge. 
I will agree that 64-bit should be done for all things, but it is very difficult for a consultant to work with 64-bit architecture on their primary laptop. The biggest issue I have is VPNs. Most of my customers are using older VPN technologies that can only work on a 32-bit OS. I can't force a customer to upgrade their VPN technology so that I can run 64-bit on my laptop. I know that I can install a VPC and make this work, but that's also a big pain in the butt. In order to do what I need to do, I would be purchasing additional memory for my laptop, which, by the way, isn't a dollar per terabyte. I just purchased a laptop for one of my guys that is coming with 16 gigabytes of RAM, and that Ah. added over $1,000 to the configuration from a 4-gigabyte system. I can see that, yeah. (laughs) Jeez, 16 gigs of RAM in a laptop. Don't! (laughs) So there is some cost associated with going for 64-bit. I would really like to see VPN companies make their stuff work in 64-bit, and my life would be so much simpler. And I would say this. For the most part, they have. It's just your customers haven't bought it. Yeah. And just as an example, we use a product in-house, Citrix Access Gateway. It's a relatively new technology. They don't have a 64-bit client. So instead of having a single VPN for my organization, I also have to use Cisco's ASA VPN, which works on both 32 and 64-bit. And this is a very frustrating issue. You know, the problem here is VPNs. Yes, it's it's not just the network and so forth. They're generally a pain in the butt. They I really use are. them as like the last resort. Yep. You're it's, basically tunneling. You've got yeah. firewall issues, you know, they're they you know, they can be used for good or ill. Yeah, and it, I think it just causes all kinds of grief. Uh, and that email came from uh, Michael Francino. Michael, thank you for your email. We'll yeah, be sending thanks, you Mike. out a mug. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, thoughts about a show we've done in the past, please send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. Our guest today is Scott Ambler. Scott is Chief Methodologist, Agile, with IBM Software Group, working with IBM customers around the world to help them to improve their software processes. He's the founder of the Agile Modeling, Agile Data, Agile Unified Process, and Enterprise Unified Process Methodologies, and creator of the Agile Process Maturity Model. Scott is the co-author of 19 books, including Refactoring Databases, Agile Modeling, Agile Database Techniques, the Object Primer 3rd Edition, and the Enterprise Unified Process. Scott is also a senior contributing editor with Information Week. Welcome, Scott. Hi. Welcome back, I should say. Yeah, oh, thank you. Good to be back. You were, about, you were on uh, in 2007, in January, show 210. We were talking about Agile then. Yep. But I think it was very database-centric this time, and, and it seems like things have evolved now with the Agile process maturity model. It sounds suspiciously like CMM for Agile. Yeah, that, that's what it sounds like, but it's uh, definitely not the case, and uh, that's actually one of the uh, common misconceptions that we, uh, we get with it. But what the uh, Agile process maturity model, the APMM, is all about is it's a contextual framework. Um, for the effective adoption and tailoring of Agile processes and practices. So the idea is you want to meet uh, the unique challenges faced by a, by a individual system delivery team because every team's in a different situation and they need processes and practices that reflect that. So, you know, use the right, right strategy for the job. So the model has uh, three levels to it. Um, the first level is what we call core Agile development. And this is for uh, level one, you know, the, so the level one Agile processes are, you know, things like Scrum and Agile modeling. Um, they're partial methods. So they're very good. Um, you know, they're, they're building blocks for a more mature uh, methodology, but for the most part, um, they don't get the full job done. So, for example, uh, Scrum, which is a great method, 
It, uh, it focuses on project leadership and on uh, requirements management, but doesn't really have anything to say about uh, construction, doesn't really have anything to say about how you do modeling or documentation, stuff like that. Or architecture or any of that. Or architecture or how do you start a project, how do you deliver into, into production. Um, Agile modeling, same, same sort of situation. It, it focuses on modeling documentation, but doesn't have much to say about coding, doesn't have much to say about testing. Um, extreme programming, which is um, pretty darn close to a level two method, which I'll talk about in a second, um, it, it also has some, some gaping holes in it. You know, it doesn't really tell you how to start the project, doesn't really tell you how to transition into production how to, or how to operate the system once it's in production. So there's some holes here. So the, the level one methodologies, um, you know, the, the first characteristic of them is that they're partial methods. They, they address part of the delivery life cycle but not the complete delivery life cycle. So, you know, I said, said it earlier, you know, the, the building blocks for a more mature situation, for a more uh, mature solution. Um, and then from the practice side of things and from the process side of things as well, um, these processes are pretty much geared towards small co-located teams, which is the majority of development teams, but it's not every single situation that you find yourself in. Um, they're, you know, these processes are typically self-governing, at least in the Agile world they are, which what that means is the people who um, who do the work are, are also ones who plan and estimate the work. Um, right. They're also value driven. Um, the life cycle is value driven. So what that means is that uh, potentially shippable software is produced on a regular basis. Um, you know, for the for the agile method with iterations or sprints. Um, then at least once every sprint or once every iteration, you've got a new version of the system that you can show people. So these are good things, um, but they're not the full picture. So the level two. Um, which is discipline agile delivery, it, um, you know, the, the, the scaling factors here, the scaling issues, um, for the most part are around the life cycle. So the, you know, the first, the, the major issue is let's, let's consider the full life cycle. So for example, how do you start, a, how do you start the project? How do you do construction? How do you um, deliver the system into production? How do you operate and support it once it's in production? So there's a few methods that, uh, that pretty much um, focus on the full delivery life cycle, such as uh, the dynamic system development method, DSDM, uh, and the open unified process. So um, that's part of the part of the level two. The other part of level two is it bring, starts bringing some of the more mature issues into play. So not only should a, an agile team be self-governing, um, they should do so with an appropriate governance framework. So, for example, um, few few teams work on their own. You know, few teams are you know off building their own thing. Um, anything they build actually has to work with the rest of the infrastructure. Has to work with other systems that are in place. Should follow corporate guidelines should follow corporate uh, conventions, should also um, you know, provide value to the corporation. Somebody's going to monitor these projects, keep an eye on them. So um, we need to recognize this. So uh, you know, a, a level two uh, mature process will bring these governance issues into, into place. And, and, and these are issues that, that you know, the, you know, a lot of agile developers don't want to talk about, but you know, the reality is, and, it's, and to be fair, it's not sexy, but um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, if you're, if you're working in, a, in an IT organization, um, there is a governance process in place. And whether or not it's explicit and whether or not it's effective, that, those are different issues, but they are there. And, and, you know, my point, at least, is, well, let's make them efficient. Let's make them effective. And to do that, we, our processes need to reflect this, this issue of governance. Um, so that's one of the issues. Um, the other, another issue is not only should the life cycle be value-driven, what we see in the in level one, but it should also be risk driven. And so, what uh, what we mean by that is that a mature team will try to reduce their business and technical risks as soon as possible. So that they try to get stakeholder concurrence at the beginning of a project. 
Um, that way you're, you're going in the right direction. They'll not only do some architecture work up front, they'll also prove the architecture with working code. They'll, they'll build an end-to-end skeleton of the system to show that their architecture actually works. So that, and what they do, what they achieve when they do this is they, they dramatically reduce their technical risk and then, um, you know, and their business risk as well by gaining uh, stakeholder concurrence. So, um, just working smarter, not harder. So that's what we see at, uh, at level two. Now, level two, as, uh, just like level one, is still geared towards small co-located teams because, you know, th- that is a very smart way of working and um, it does get the job done in a lot of situations. But, you know, what, what if that's not your situation? Okay, so at level three, what we deal with are these, are these higher level issues. So APM level three is all about um, scaling agile software development or agile software delivery. So the idea here is that sometimes your team isn't small, it isn't co-located, or maybe it's in a complex situation. So level three, this is when we get into the scaling factors. And we like to talk about six different scaling factors. So, the, you know, the first scaling factor moving from level one to level two was this, um, the scope of the delivery process. Moving to level three, um, there's six scaling factors that we potentially, um, you know, take into consideration. So the idea is that APM level three is disciplinary delivery when one or more scaling factors kicks in. And these scaling factors are team size, so perhaps you've got a large team, geographical distribution, so perhaps you're working on different floors or you're working in different buildings or in different cities. Um, you know, that obviously increases your complexity. Um, perhaps you're in a regulatory compliance situation. Um, perhaps you've got significant environmental complexity. Maybe you're working on a very difficult um, system. Maybe you're working on uh, d- um, difficult technology. Maybe your, uh, you know, organization culture is a bit challenging. So, you know, your environment, um, you know, is complex. That, therefore, increases your project risk. Uh, another scaling factor is organizational distribution. Perhaps you've got multiple divisions working on this project. Perhaps you've got some consultants involved. Perhaps, you've, uh, perhaps you're doing some outsourcing of one or more of the modules. So the fact that you've got multiple companies involved increases your complexity. And then the sixth scaling factor is enterprise discipline. Perhaps, um, you know, I, I would hope that you want to get good at, at, at reuse and that you want to get good at enterprise architecture and operations and support and uh, portfolio management and all these good things. Um, these are all cross-system issues that require an enterprise focus that we often don't talk about at level one and level two in the Agile world. So, um, so just to repeat, there's three levels in APMM. Core Agile development, this is often the mainstream uh, partial methodologies that we see. Um, level two, APMM level two, is discipline Agile delivery. Now, to be fair, you can cobble together an APMM uh, level two compliant methodology from APMM level one processes and practices, and many organizations do, but the reality is that's a lot of work. So, you know, do what you want, but, um, you know, minimally you should be looking at level two. And then level three, um, agility at scale, that's discipline agile delivery when one or more of the scaling factors um, is appropriate to your team. It sounds like level three is where most agile falls apart. You know, when, well, you, when you do have those issues, that's when, that's when it really gets challenging. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 I don't want to say that Agile falls apart there. Um, the mainstream Agile advice starts to fall apart right. when you have these scaling factors. becomes very difficult. Yeah, and it's very interesting. You'll, you'll hear people and they'll tell you, oh, you can't possibly do Agile with a large team. Um, you know, and that, that completely ignores um, the evidence out there that you know, people are, in fact, succeeding with large teams or, in fact, doing it in regulatory environments or doing it with distributed teams. But the way that you work has to change. And it is also a lot of things that, you know, the larger your organization is and the you know, the more people have their ideas and assert their influence over the process, the more challenging it is just to stay focused on the agile methodologies. 
Exactly, and, and, that, and that's part of the, the environmental complexity um, scaling factor. You'll have you know, cultural challenges is the, the polite way of saying it, where you right. know, you've got um, some people with their vision of the way they want to work and what they think um, should, should work, and you know, that will contradict the Agile stuff, and you need to figure, figure out a way to, to make it all work together. So it seems like this, um, this white paper that you've written here, this, this methodology, is really ammo you know, for the agile developer to take up the chain and say, look, you know, here's this, uh, this addresses these problems that we're having and we should implement some of these things. Yeah, I think, um, you know, APMM definitely brings a lot of uh, value to the agile community because it, um, like I said, you know, it really, it really is a contextual framework. And what it does is it provides you, you know, the ammunition that you need to say, hey, you know what, um, we can make agile work in this situation, but here's the way we need to change it. Um, so you can look at it from uh, the point of view of pra- individual practices, um, individual processes, and you can tailor those processes and practices to meet the needs of your situation. But if you try to you know, adopt some of the mainstream Agile stuff straight out of the box, when you're in an a- you know, APMM Level 3 situation, um, you're going to get into trouble. And I think this is uh, one of the important implications, actually, of APMM, is it makes these issues explicit. So if you're in a complex situation... Um, applying simple solutions isn't going to cut it for you. But then again, if you're in a very simple situation, so if you really are in a small co-located team and you're developing straightforward software, um, then, you know, you're you're at APMM Level 2, well, don't start applying APMM Level 3 strategies in that simple situation. That's just overkill. And I think this is one of the the things that the, the traditional community seems to have missed is that they'll often, you know, be in these simpler situations but they'll still uh, apply complex strategies and then get themselves into trouble as a result. So um, we can work smarter, not harder. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. Hey, how many times have you drowned into endless CSS classes just to change the color of a single element of your application UI? How many times have you had to ask your designer to create custom skins so that Your UI controls match your company's brand identity. It's time to turn to a new page. Telerik has launched the Visual Style Builder for ASP.NET Ajax, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. Colorizing a complete skin at once has never been easier. Just move the color slider and all elements will shift their color spectrum accordingly. That's cool. If the colorization is not enough, you can fine-tune individual elements to perfection. Whether you want to change fonts and sizes, margins and padding, background colors, or just about any style property, it's all easy and intuitive through the Visual Style Builder's graphical interface. It sounds incredible, so let's go and check it out at stylebuilder.telerik.com. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And uh, as for level three, which, again, I think is the really interesting thing here because this is where the challenges are, is uh, the scaling factors. Some of the suggestions that you uh, – or some of the things that you outlined. Let's talk about some of the things that you outlined there at level three. Yeah, definitely. So, so there, there's – like I said, there's the six scaling factors. So there's team size, which is, you know, the obvious one. And, and you know, managing a large team is difficult. So – um, you know, you're going to modify your practices. You're going to adopt different tools um, in, a, in, you know, for a larger team as opposed to a smaller team. Um, the second scaling factor is the distribution. Um, one of the things I do at uh, Information Week is I run survey industry surveys, and we found that 
you know, without a doubt, you know, the more distributed your team is, um, the lower your success rate. And this is true of any paradigm, um, including Agile. Now, the good news is that Agile teams seem to have a higher success rate when uh, in highly distributed manners as opposed to other types of paradigms like traditional or iterative and, and good stuff like that. So, but it's still tough. So, you know, the more distributed you are, the greater the risk. So distributed Agile teams fail less often. Yes. Uh, it, and it's interesting how much of an impact distribution have, especially in the agile context where constant communication is the norm. If you spread the people out, you have a, a tough time keeping people communicating. Yeah, and I think what happens is the agile teams are more aware of the need to communicate and collaborate right. than perhaps the traditional teams. So I think this is one of the reasons why they're seeing a higher success rate, even in these bad situations. Um, but, you know, not distributing is, is definitely the strategy, but that's not often not, your, not an option for you. But also, is, Agile tends to generate reporting more frequently. You find out people are being non-productive sooner. Exactly. Yeah, and, and this, this comes from, you know, so in the Agile community, we, we, well, we produce potentially shippable software on a regular basis. Right. And so as a result, if you're fooling around, if, or, or even if you're not fooling around, just things are going badly for you, um, you can't hide that in the Agile world. Whereas in the traditional world, you can paper it over, you can, you can uh, you know, put in, uh, in you know, Stats reports that you know might gloss over some of the challenges. Right. Um, you, you could you know hand in good specifications and that, and it's pretty hard for management for the and for the stakeholders to to find out if the you know how well the team is actually doing. In the agile world, there's no room to hide. Uh, everything's open. Everything's visible. Um, agile teams are much easier to govern than traditional teams. So there's some significant uh, advantage there. Yeah, the constant shipping of software sort of gives you a steady reality check on these things. But so what is it that you can do to overcome the impact of distributed teams? Yeah. So so if if you're distributed, then you're going to have to you're going to use uh, um better tooling, better processes. So you're going to start organizing your team around um, your architecture. You're also going to have um at the same time know your requirements artifacts need to reflect your architecture. So for example, if if you organize your architecture around, you know, the three layers, you know, the, you know, user interface and business logic and database logic, then you need to have requirements, you know, for just the user interface stuff, just the business stuff, just the um, database stuff. If you have, if you want to do requirements, say, like user stories that will cross, you know, you know, multiple layers, then your architecture needs to be organized around the business domain. So have, you know, you know, if it's a bank, then you'll have, you know, a, a, you know com- a component for doing, you know, account transactions, a, a component for doing insurance transactions, a component for, you know, doing checking account versus savings accounts, whatever. And then that way you can assign the different requirements to the different teams and um, you don't have any crossing. So just the, you know, the way that you organize the team, the, the, the approach that you take um, is better. You're going to have, um, you know, so say you've, you've got uh, your status reporting is going to change. You're going to want to automate as much as possible your metrics gathering um, if you've got, you know, doing a daily stand-up every day, it's pretty hard when you have the people on the other side of the planet, so you're going to be using electronic tools for that. Um, you know, you, you know, the individual local teams might be able to have, you know, actual physical stand-up meetings, but you're still going to have to have some way to, you know, share status between, uh, between the teams, so, you know, that's going to require some sort of electronic tooling. So you're, things will change. It's, it's, I really feel like there's no way to avoid the stand-up meeting. You gotta do it, even if the time zones suck. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and you'll do things like, um, you know, to make it fair to the, um, people on the other continent, you'll, you'll change the time, the time of day, um, that you'll have the meeting. So that way, you know, you've got to stay up late some nights and sometimes they've got to. And, 
and stuff like that. But um, yeah, you've, you've got to do it. You know, you've, you've got to get the collaboration. You've got to um, you, you've got to maintain con- you maintain contact at all points in time. So yeah, di- you know, distribution's harder. And um, unfortunately, what we see in the Agile community is you know this reliance. Yeah, you know, level one and level two, we see this reliance on. Um, on like face-to-face communication, on you know paper-based tooling, on whiteboards, which is great in those situations, but they fall apart quickly um, at level three. So um, you need to change the way you work, the way you organize your teams, the the type of tools that you use, um, and this is something that the the agile are learning. I mean, one of the arguments you could make here is you've got to be together. I mean, isn't that one of the alternatives? Is we are going to impair our performance if we don't have this team together. So, you know, yeah, exactly. Mm. But so, so, yeah, so definitely you know, avoid distribution if you can. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, there are, you know, there's a lot of very good people around the world and there's very good reason to have dis- distributed teams. So yeah, there's a trade-off here. There's certainly more and more tools and methodologies that are available for doing team development over a large uh, geographical span. Yeah, exactly. Um, I yeah, I don't know if you've taken a look at it or not, but yeah, and this definitely works in the the Microsoft world as well as Java world. But um, Rational Team Concert is, is exactly geared for that sort of a situation. Um, it provides the tools that distributed agile teams need. It's actually built by a distributed agile team, so they you know they use the tool to to build the tool. We actually did a whole show on distributed development with Stephen Forte a while okay. back, and he was talking about how Skype was sort of critical to to how they were doing uh, distributed scrum meetings and things like that. Yeah, so yeah, so you'll 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 have um you'll you'll be doing some sort of voice communication, but you you still need um, chat, um your development tools, you know. So if you're doing distributed development, you need, you know, your 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 CM system needs to reflect this, the way that you manage your product backlog needs to reflect this, um the way that you report needs to reflect this. Even just getting insight into what, you know, if you've got like the typical thing is you're, you're developing your management or, or one team is in, you know, California, another team is in India. They're working on opposite sides of the planet, so completely upside-down time zones, and you really need to have some insight into what happened that day, you know, to so, so a whole bunch of logging and blogging and doing all kinds of things like that, getting metrics and finding out what, you know, what happened by the time you get to work in the morning. You need to know what's been going on while you were sleeping. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you need integrated tooling for this. And um, right. you know, this, is, this is one of the things we see with, the, you know, like the RTC dashboard that, you know, it, it gathers metrics um, from the, the, the development tool itself. So there's no extra data input. There's not this extra bureaucracy that you see when you're using the, the simpler techniques. And, and this is actually one of the, the dirty secrets that we see at, at APMM Level 1. Um, some of these, you know, co-located Agile processes, um, there's a fair bit of bureaucracy going on there, you know, when they're, you know, using spreadsheets to, you know, to do their burn-down charts and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that, that adds up. That, that, right. You know, that's stuff that can be automated. So what about you, know, you putting your taking that into question. What about putting your tools in the cloud? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so doing uh, uh, stuff like that, like you know, the, the architecture of the tool um, it doesn't doesn't have that big an impact. You know, regardless of what the tool vendors will say. But um, and, and I work for a tool vendor. But you know, yeah, yeah. Cloud. You know, putting putting the tools in the cloud. Uh, putting are one option. in the cloud. Sure. Just using the cloud in general. Some sort of shared shared server is what the real issue is, right? So some some sort of shared repository. Um, 
guys, maybe we should get past geography because, well, it's a cool debate. It's only one of six issues. Uh, Can we jump on compliance next? I think this one's a real bear. Uh, Are we really talking about uh, socks here? Is that the one? Yeah, so, so it could be it could be socks like Sarbanes Oxley, um, you know, the FDA um, regulations could be some self inflicted stuff. Um, you know, I, I go into companies all the time that have basically you know laid down the law as a you know when when it comes to their own internal regulations. So all that is is really is just, it's just a constraint. And um, so one, one of the things I tell developers is that first and foremost, read the regulations. So um, I've done this. I guess I don't have a life, but um, the, you know, none of these regulations say to work in a stupid bureaucratic manner. Right. Um, yet what happens, you know, and so my observation is that if you let the bureaucrats interpret the regulations, you're going to end up with a bureaucratic response, and you're going to get what you deserve. What you really need is the practical people need to take the time to read the regulations, to interpret them, and what you'll find is that they're all pretty reasonable. Like you know, everybody complains about the FDA regulations, but they're all re- they're reasonable. You know, you know, they're they're there to to to, to help save lives. Right. And when you actually look at them, um, it's not it's not all that burdensome. You know, as long as practical people interpret the regulations. Um, and there's been wonderful case studies and experience reports that you can you know if you if you go searching around, you can find them. Um, talking about people's experiences in these regulatory environments. I've worked in a few. Um, yeah, I've worked in some you know, life-critical situations and some you know, financial-critical situations where you know, regulations were pretty heavy, and you can still be agile, you know, not as agile in a non-regulatory environment, but you can still be very agile. So you know, don't let the bureaucrats push you around, I guess is my, um, yeah, the best advice I can give you. Sometimes easier said than done. Absolutely. But you, oh, know, yeah. you mentioned this up front, this idea that of risk prosecution. Uh, often when I've been involved in development projects, before we brought the whole team on, when we just had a couple of the senior guys, we would prosecute these kinds of risks. Typically, they were technical risks, like can we make this communication go fast enough? Can we handle that transactional load and stuff? But I think both in the case of geographic distribution of a team and in regulatory compliance, actually going through the procedures of shipping something just to see, can I be compliant and can I you know, deal with the distributed issues before I commit the whole team? And, and plus that I get to go push back to my guys and say, should we change these rules or are you prepared for the cost of what it's going to take to do it this way? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so improve things out. Um, you've got to address these risks right away, and in you know, letting the risks linger, um, risks just grow. Um, you know, they never—you know—they re- very rarely uh, disappear all on their own. So, you know, if, you, if you've got these known risks, you need to nail them as soon as possible. Well, and nailing them when before the whole team's there, writing tons of code that are going to have to be changed. Yeah, exactly. You guys know that there's a European Commission uh, consumer protection proposal that is uh, aiming to make software developers liable for their code. Oh, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are going to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other side of this, I've often thought that one of the main problems we've got with this industry is nobody is liable for what they've done. Yeah, well, you know, it's an awfully big waiver that you have to, you know, that license agreement, man, you're giving up a whole bunch of rights when you click OK, go ahead yeah. and install this. It's- the EULA that nobody reads, it's pages and pages and pages, basically says, hey, if this thing kills your children, not our fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that sort of stuff's going to have to disappear. It's, it's out of hand. I often wonder if this is not what's impairing our industry as a whole. Because if I go to a doctor, he's certified by a board, 
And that board doesn't just say, yes, he's a doctor. He also says, if that guy kills your loved one, we pay. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not so much wanting the liability to sit on the developer. I want that to sit on an organization who certifies those developers so that I only use developer certified by them. So when that developer messes up, and I'm not saying he's not gonna, there's somebody out there who goes, yes, you're right. He was one of our certified guys. He messed up. It's up to us to discipline him. Meantime, here's your money. Yeah, huh. and, and I think we'll get there eventually, but probably not in our lifetime. And I think, and the reason why I say that is that we've had opportunities before to get our act together as an industry, and yes. we've chosen not to. So, for example, um, Y2K was a perfect example where everybody was ticked off at us for the, you know for a very obvious crappy mistake and a crappy yep. job that we did, and nobody came after us. You know, you know they, why? Everybody just took it. We and, got away yeah, with it. Well, I think we we raised the bar of expectation pretty high. The world was going to end, you know, and when nothing really happened, everybody was just relieved. They weren't li- feeling very litigious on January 1st. But oh, yeah, they should have gone after us, right? Like that was a, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars were thrown away over two bites. Um, and so, so, so the point here is that here's something that affected the entire world and everybody is motivated to get their act together and we chose not to. Yeah, so so now so the point is so you know if we with that amount of motivation we had then and nothing happened, um, we're never going to see this again. So we're going to have to you know bootstrap ourselves over many many decades and probably centuries um, until we're at this situation. But it really is the wild west in the, in the IT world. You know, so, you, know, you know, say for example certification. Um, you know, there's some good certification out there, but like in the Azure community right now, it's a complete joke. You, you take a two-day course and suddenly you're a certified master. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, people can get away with doing that, um, and, and that nobody ever calls them on it, it seems, um, tells you that they're, they're, you know, our expectations are so low and that we have almost no integrity whatsoever, um, that, you know, how the heck can you, you know, ever get a decent certification in that sort of an environment? when, you know, these blatant scams are happening. Dude, you're grimmer wow. than me. That's saying something. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I brought the conversation to Screeching Hall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I, th- I feel like we got away with Y2K, that if Y2K had been a disaster, that's what would have brought the regulation in. But because we managed to fix it and not have the disaster, we snuck past the bar. Yeah, that, yeah, and, and, and which is, I guess, is good and it's bad. It's unfortunate, um, but I don't know. It's just, I, I just don't see we're gonna, we're not as an industry, we're not gonna be uh, a group of professionals any time in my lifetime. Um, I think it's a, we need to, but it's a, we're never gonna do it. It's just, right. you know, the motivation is not there. That is very cynical of you, Mister. Uh... Ambler and I will. Uh, I'll hopefully prove you wrong someday, but not okay. this week. I just I, I've been hearing this story for over over three decades for three decades now. So you know, I suspect it's gonna. I'll, I'll be hearing it two or three decades from now. That's my bet. Okay, I'm gonna drag us back here. Go back to another one of your scaling factors: uh, okay. application complexity. Yeah, that was that was the next one I was gonna suggest too. Skip to the bottom. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, so, so the issue there, there's a few issues. And it's, it's more environmental complexity, not just application complexity. But, um, you know, so the, the, main, the main issue here is, you know, if, you, if you're building something very complex or if you're working with existing legacy code or building to, into an environment where, you know, there's multiple systems in play and you've got very significant integration issues, 
um, that that increases that increases the complexity of of your and the risk to your project team. And you know we're not building these greenfield standalone systems, um, which we keep hearing about. Um, we have these very significant integration issues, which requires significant maturity and you know a, a much um, broader outlook than what we than what we hear about it at level one, level two sometimes. So. Um, you know, these, these application complexities can really have a huge impact on our projects. I was also thinking that there's a very positive angle to this, which is if I have an app of long lifespan and, uh, you know, many versions, being able to capture elements of that, that, you know, easing the pain of, of the later versions that we build a good infrastructure, we keep growing, we stop thinking specific version. That's good complexity. That's, I, you know, that's a very mature way to develop that I have a net benefit for future versions. Yeah. You, you, you would hope so. And, and, and the smart organizations definitely look at it that way. But a lot of organizations do seem to have a very short, short term, uh, mindset, you know, working quarter by quarter. Yeah, my so. m- my promotion is based on this version, not the next one. I don't care about the next one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we'll start making shortcuts. And, and this is the problem. In the IT world, there really aren't any shortcuts. And, you know, what we think is a shortcut is almost always a long cut. Um, <laughs> We've got to stop fooling around. Yeah, we're always going to get hit, but it's going to catch us eventually. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Uh, let's still tear back down to sort of these core things. Is, do you pretty much think that anybody who's doing Agile in a sensible way is a level one, like there's nothing more to it, or are they automatically level two because there's always some kind of process? Yeah, so, so um, usually what happens is it, it's sort of a weird environment. Like everybody talks about this level one stuff. So you know, everybody will be talking about Scrum or Extreme Programming or you know, uh, other things, and yet they're not doing that, right? Because, you know, none of these things are sufficient. So any project team that I've ever been involved with, um, you know, they've got to, you know, they've got to start the project somehow. You know, they've got to do some initial modeling. They've got to, you know, they've got to kick the project off. Um, they've got to get support. They've got to get funding for it. And that takes time. And yet we never talk about this. So these, these core, these mainstream agile methods just sort of wave their hands. And they sort of leave it to everybody else to figure out, you know, how to do this sort of stuff. And same thing with uh, releasing software into production. That can be a really difficult and nasty endeavor. Um, and it, it takes time. It takes skill. Um, it's not, you know, might not be very sexy, yet it needs to be done, and everybody needs to do it. Yet we never, we never really hear about it. We never really talk about it other than, oh, yeah, just, you know, you wave your hands and do it. Um, so this is a problem. So what happens is the, a lot of organizations will, will take these, you know, these level one methodologies, and they'll, they'll cobble them together. They'll take practices and ideas from each one and sort of, you know, put together their own methodology, which is great, but it's a heck of a lot of work, and they don't always get it right, and, you know, they have learning experiences along the way, and which can be good and bad, but the, 
they they really do. It's a wasteful endeavor, um, particularly when it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be this way. So one of the things that, that we're trying to do with with uh, the agile process maturity model is we're saying, hey, you know what? You know, level two is basically the minimum that you need to do to get the job done. If you want to get, you know, if you want to get a system into production, here's what the life cycle needs to look like, and it, and it's a different story than what you're hearing sometimes in the mainstream community. And and you know, one of the aspects of, of a level two methodology is it, it's serial, um, you know, it's serial in the large. So, you know, you do have this, you know, project inception effort that you've got to do. Everybody does it, but they don't want to admit that they're doing it. Then you've got construction. Then you've got some sort of a, um, you know, a release phase or, a, you know, a transition phase. And all of this stuff happens, and we need to, you know, we need to admit that. Now, you know, some people talk about a release rhythm and stuff like that, but in the end, they're really getting down to the fact that you're serial in the large and, you know, iterative in the small and serial in the large. And, well, why don't we just admit this and, you know, just say, hey, some of the mainstream rhetoric isn't exactly accurate, and here's what we're actually doing, even though we don't, some of us don't like admitting the fact that we are following this, you know, serial in the large process, and let's just, let's just talk about what we actually do as opposed to, you know, what's cool to talk about. Um, because it's cool to talk about construction. It's not so cool to talk about, you know, modeling, for example, yet even though, you know, all the agilists are pretty much doing modeling, but they don't talk about it very often. So let's talk about agile modeling just a bit. Is there a particular methodology you're suggesting here? Yeah, well, you know, I would, I would, I would push everybody towards agile modeling, um, the agile modeling methodology. Um, but you know, so, so the idea here is that you know, what, so what agile modeling talks about is a, a just a collection of practices that uh, that people do on a regular basis with an agile project. So they'll do some initial at, you know, requirements envisioning because you know, your requirement stack's got to come from somewhere. They'll do some initial architecture envisioning because you've you got to figure out how you're going to build things and how the, the major components are going to fit together. They, you do modeling during your iteration planning, your sprint planning effort. You do um, model storming throughout the project to you know, address um, issues, to do you know, just-in-time analysis or just-in-time design. You'll do um, you know, test-driven development. So you know, um, Agile model-driven development talks about the need to support that with test-driven development. Um, you know, Single-source information, so you, you try to store... Um, information in one place, one place only, so that way you don't have the same piece of information in multiple artifacts, and then you increase your maintenance burden and stuff like that. So there's, you know, there's a few techniques in the Agile modeling methodology that people do a lot, but they often don't talk about it because you know, modeling is one of those. In modeling and documentation are those taboo concepts in the Agile community that right. you know everybody does, but you know, nobody wants to talk about it, and it's. It's interesting. So, you know, in the um, in information week, you know, like I said, we do these we do these um, uh, surveys, and you know, it's a difference of night and day between you know what you hear people talking about in some of the mainstream agile books or some of the you know some of the the mailing lists, and then what they're doing in in practice. Um, just difference of night and day. Like you know, they barely ever talk about doing upfront modeling, or if they do talk about it, you know, it's always oh, you know that's evil. That's big design upfront. You don't possibly want to do that. And yet, when you you know in in private, and you start asking him, so what did you do at the beginning of the project? Oh yeah, we did some upfront requirements, we did some upfront architecture, and blah blah blah, right? So they don't want to talk about it because we've got this macho programming culture that doesn't allow us to talk about the the, the sorts of things we actually do. You mean we don't just walk in, start writing code? Apparently not. <laughs> no, um, yeah, and, and, and it's weird. Like you know, every project I've ever been involved with. You know, there's some manager guy running around, or you know, some manager, some management lady running around saying, you know, I want to know what you're what you're going to build, and I want to know how long it's going to take, and I want to know roughly how much it's going to cost, and if you don't tell me those things, you're not getting any money from me. Right. 
So, That's really what it is, is know, I end up making enough documentation to be able to get funded. Yeah. Yeah. People have to do these sorts of things. So why don't we talk about it? And, you know, why don't we have an explicit um, you know, life cycle that actually reflects that? And that's, so that's what we're getting at with, with uh, you know, APM Mobile 2 is that, okay, here's what the adults are actually doing. And, you know, why don't we start here as a base and talk about that and get good at this um, because this is, this is the minimum to get the job done. And then if you happen to have these scaling factors kick in, okay, well, things are going to change a bit from there. You know, the, the overall life cycle is basically the same, but the way that you uh, address the life cycle changes. You know, the, pra- the flavor of the practices changes. Um, what are some of the common misconceptions people have regarding the APMM? So um, I think the, the most common misperception about APMM is that it's is some sort of, you know, something like the CMMI. So, uh, or, or to be more accurate, more like the stage model of the CMMI. So they hear this fact that, you know, we're talking about three different levels, and then they start thinking, well, you know, we're going to start getting rated, and it's become overly bureaucratic, and all this documentation, and um, things will get really bad really quickly. Um, well, the reality is no. It's not about giving. It's not about ranking. So you know, nobody's ever going to give you a little gold star for being APMM level two or level three. Um, you know, and 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 frankly, if you want the little gold star, then yeah, then adopt the the you know the staged model of the of the CMMI because you know the CMMI is you know geared at least the staged model, um, the staged version of it is geared to you know give you your rankings and you know, let you know what level you are and you can use that for you know marketing your marketing literature and stuff like that. So. Um, if you if you are looking to be ranked, then CMMI is is the way to go. Um, if you're looking to you know to do process improvement, if you're looking to adopt and tailor um, agile practices and processes in an effective manner, then APMM is you know what you should be looking at because it helps you to to put things in context. And so that's what the real goal is to to help you to understand what situation you're actually in, and then to adopt the right processes, the right practices in the, to the right extent. Um, to do that, and um, you know, to to you know, to, um, you know, accurately and effectively connect your process to the situation that you're in, and I think that this is important because you know a lot of our, you know, a lot of the customers I work with, at least, um, you know, they hear the agile messaging like this, you know, the APMM level one stuff, and they hear it, and it sounds phenomenally naive because first of all, it's not the full picture, um, you know, it glosses over some very important issues. And, you know, it, it really is focused on small, co-located teams for the most part. So then when they get in these more complex situations, um, you know, it's like you were saying, they perceive that it falls, that Agile falls apart. And right. no, Agile doesn't fall apart if you, you know, if you, if you understand um, what you're doing. Well, it certainly becomes more challenging. It's, yeah, it's certainly challenging, but, um, you know, the fact still is, is that pe- people are scaling Agile. So right. um, it can be done, is it- but you've got to know what you're doing. And the mainstream stuff is, you know, you know, you know so scrum out of the box. Um, it's not going to get the job done for you. Um, you're going to need to rethink things a bit. Can you be CMMI compliant and agile at the same time? Yeah, um, people are doing it. Yep. Um, we, we ran a survey about a year ago on this. Um, there's actually CMMI um, agile auditors now. Um, the SEI, the Software Engineering Institute, has a, has a good white paper on this very topic. So, yeah, um, they do um, fit together. But, you know, the one problem is that there are cultural differences between the Agile community and the CMI community. So, and requirements differences, too. Um, they're not as much as you'd perceive. So you, you, need to, you need to look at CMMI and what it actually says. Because, um, you know, once again, you've got to read the regulations. You've got to read okay. the material. And if you choose to um, you know, interpret it in an Agile way, in a practical way, 
you'll come up with a practical response. If you let the bureaucrats interpret it, you'll come up with a bureaucratic response. Now, there, there are a few nuances in CMMI that I would argue against, but they're not major nuances. So CMMI will push you towards um, um, doing uh, traceability, for example, which to me is something I would only, probably only do in a regulatory compliant compliance type of situation. So there's one or two things in CMMI that, you know, you know minor issues that, you, would, that you, you could argue against. But for the most part, it's you know, a lot of really good ideas if it's interpreted by practical people. Um, but, you know, once again, if you let the bureaucrats interpret your uh, regulations, you'll end up with a bureaucratic response. Scott, I don't want to change gears too badly here, but I read one of your pieces a while back, uh, and I meant to talk to you about it either face-to-face or not, but this is as good a time as any. Okay. The generalizing specialists conversation. Yeah. Always good conversation. So what a generalizing specialist is, is it's somebody with one or more specialties, because you've got to be able to do something. So it'll be you know somebody who... Who can who definitely has good solid programming skills or solid database skills or solid testing skills or solid management skills or you know several of those sets of skills. Um, plus, they've got a general knowledge of the process, so they know how how it all fits together, and they've got a good knowledge of the domain, and they're willing to pick up new skills from others. And what happens is that these people are more effective in practice than somebody who is just a specialist. So the, the challenge with, with specialists. Is, you know, there's a few, a few challenges. First, um, they'll do their jobs whether or not they need to be done. So if you've got somebody who's a use case modeling specialist or a, a data modeling specialist, they're going to spend all their time doing use case modeling or data modeling, as the case may be, whether or not you actually need that. And they'll have very good stories to tell you for why those things are important. Um, so you'll end up doing all this extra work whether it needs to be done or not. Um, the other issue is that you know, specialists are, you know, they'll, they'll know their own thing, but they'll have problems um, interacting with other specialists. Um, you'll also have the situation where, um, you know, the use case modeling specialists will capture all the information in their use cases, because that's what they do, and then the data modeling specialists will capture a lot of the same sort of information in the data models, um, because that's what they do. And then now you've got traceability issues and consistency issues and stuff like that. So a lot of extra work gets done with specialists. Um, and it also slows down the process because you end up, each specialist does their thing, hand off to the next specialist, so you get this daisy chain of, uh, of, people, uh, of uh, people doing their work, and um, which also ends up with the, you know, the weakest link in the chain um, can be a problem for you. So there's a lot of challenges with specialists, and the same thing with generalists. So you know, if you've got a team built of just generalists, um, then nobody really has the skills to get anything done. So you know, you know, a bunch of documentation will probably get written, and that'll be about it. So a generalizing specialist is that sweet spot between the two extremes of being a generalist and being a specialist. So it's you know, somebody with one or more you know, specialties plus a general knowledge of uh, the domain they're working in and the process and the willingness to, to pick up new skills from other people. I'm trying to think of mixes of specialties for .NET developers. Oh, wow. There's tons of them, right? You got the uh, WPF Silverlight thing. Yeah, and I'm thinking that's a really great pairing because you know one of the Scott's points was you pick the wrong technology because that's what you're skilled in. So the, a guy who's both Silverlight and WPF is is straddling smart versus web. That's right, and he he knows XAML and that applies on both platforms. Yeah, exactly. So 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 what you're getting at here is that the people with the wider range of skills are more likely to pick the right technology and the right technique for the situation at hand. If you only know one thing, you know, it's like, you know, if you only know, if you only know how to use a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. Every problem's a nail, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. 
But I think at the same time, you this is not so much a skills thing as it is basically a maturity thing to say, keep learning new things and picking the right thing, whether you're good at it or not. Exactly. We're back to mature development in, in general. Uh, I was looking at the list of APMM level two uh, uh, discipline agile delivery, and the first option there was really the hybrid process. And my immediate gut said, that sounds like the 90% case. The people yeah. build essentially their own level two process of how they uh, they actually do uh, SDLC. Yeah, exactly, and, and, and that's a real shame. Um, you know, it's good they've got to do it, but it, it's a shame because they, you know, if you only listen to the the mainstream Agile advice like the APMM Mobile One stuff, um, it really doesn't get the job done for you. So then, as a result, you're you're forced um, almost by definition. Um, into the situation where you got to cobble together a bunch of stuff to get the job done, which which is okay, but and it's great for the consultants. So you know maybe there's a conspiracy theory here, but it's great for the consultants. But it's not that good for your organization because you're probably not a process. You know you're not process experts um, for the most part. And even if you were, do you really want to spend your time um, you know working on processes, or are you really getting paid to work on systems? So all this effort that people go through to put together, you know, to build their own process um, is a real waste. I go into companies all over the world, and invariably, like, you know, I'll go in, I'll do, a, you know, some sort of process review or a, a project review, and, and invariably they'll show me the, the process, they, you know, their, their scrum-based or their XP-based process that they, they, they cobble together on their own. They're, they're right. proud of it. And it's almost always yes, the exact same solution um, time and time again. And I, I've, I've been in some companies where I, you know, we'll be in the middle of a presentation. I'll uh, just say, wait, stop. Let me, let me show you the rest of your slide deck really quickly. And I'll whip, I'll whip up my um, laptop and I'll walk them through a couple key diagrams and I'll say, okay, here's what you figured out. And, it, and they said, yeah, it's pretty much what we did. And I say, well, how, long, how much effort did you put into this? Well, it took us about six months to get to that point. And I say, well, do you realize you could have downloaded that free of charge online if you'd, if you'd only searched, you spent five minutes searching for it? Although, admittedly, you still would have been spent three to six months learning to do it correctly. Um, yeah, you, yeah, um, but you wouldn't have had as many learning mistakes, yeah. and you wouldn't have had it. Wouldn't be as much of a struggle. So and you still, and you don't have that question mark of, are we doing this right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and at least it'll, it'll give you some ideas. You know, right away you can say, oh yeah, yeah. Um, this is what we need to, you know, this makes sense. This, this is how it all fits together. I mean, you, you won't have all the this struggle to, to figure it all out. You know what this reminds me of? Remember when everybody used to build their own frameworks? Yep. You know, exact same the, thing. Yeah. The J2, when eventually, J2E and .NET made it an embarrassment to try and build your own framework. Yeah. But So we stopped doing that, but we still seem to like we're doing that in the development process side. Yep, exactly. And, and, and the strange thing is, you know, most people aren't very good at this process stuff. So at least you, you could sort of argue that a lot of developers were pre, you know, pretty good at, at coding, so it sort of made sense for them to work on frameworks. But you know, they really don't have the process background, um, and, they, and they struggle as a result. It's, but anyways, you know, we're, we're maturing as, a, as an industry, and we'll eventually figure it out that you know, we need some sort of a, a common process framework or common sets of practices or you know, whatever it ends up being. I still feel like we have a sense of, uh, as a cult, as a development culture, that it is not uh, it's not cool to use all these tools or to use all this intrinsic process. Yeah, cool? it's not cool. It's not cool. You have to roll your own. Oh, so wow, the cool okay. devs build their own. 
I don't know. You know, it's either you can be cool or have a job. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> well, I, I think there, there's there's a lot of denial. Um, yeah. <laughs> excuse me. So you know, the, you know, the issue. I always look at modeling and and documentation. Like the the agile folks are really in, in denial of sometimes about how much modeling they actually do. And then, and yet, you know, you, you walk around their environment, and they got whiteboards all over the place, and um, you know, they got, you know, they got they got diagrams all over the place. And you know, and meanwhile, you know, five minutes earlier, they would have told you, they would have sworn up and down they didn't do any modeling, and then you, you actually walk into their workspace, and there's models all over the place. So, um, it's really, it's really sort of, it's unfortunate that you know we can't observe and, and can't talk about um, some of the things that we that we do. I guess it's just a, a cultural communication challenge that we have right now the phrase that hits my mind is cognitive dissonance yeah exactly yeah exactly you know scott when we talked to you last time uh we talked an awful lot about databases in this context how does the database fit into this the apmm model i mean it's just it's just another issue so it's um, yeah, so all the stuff um, yeah, I've been talking about applies to um, database practices. Uh, applies to um, you know work, you know the, you know all the all the, the database activities in your process um, are throughout the entire um, throughout the entire process. So um, the, you know it, it applies directly. Um, it just the, the data stuff isn't special. I think that's the yeah you, know, you know all the stuff applies to you know working on your business logic, working on your database stuff, working on security logic working on your user interface. Um, there's nothing special about data. It's the same basic set of rules. I mean, there's a few things yep. that are unique about data uh, from an ops perspective, but do you think process-wise it's the same, should be the same set of procedures? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's no, I mean, this is the stuff that I was getting at in my uh, my work in Agile database techniques and in database refactoring. Um, I pretty much showed there that, you know, you can work in a very agile and evolutionary manner doing database stuff if you choose to. Now, a lot of um, existing traditional database people struggle with that um, because they don't have the background, they don't have the discipline, they don't have the skills, um, but they could choose to get the, those skills if they wanted to. Um, so, you know, there's some very severe cultural challenges right now with the data community. Um, it, it's sort of a shame. I, you know, in more and more organizations, I'm seeing the, the data people being uh, relegated to uh, operations roles, right. um, and they're, they're slowly being removed from anything involving enterprise architecture, anything involving um, development, anything, anything new or interesting, um, they pretty much get, you know, get sidelined on now just because they, they've had such a poor success rate with what they do and they, they're generally perceived as, as being more of, a, more of a hassle and more of a problem than they're actually worth. Um, so they're, they're being relegated to operations roles, which are, which are important, but you know, certainly not the, yeah, it certainly isn't the vision that, that many um, data professionals probably have for their careers. So um, I, I think they, um, the chickens are coming home to roost for the data community, and, um, uh, and, and it could be a problem, I think, because you know, the, the, the data community definitely has some value to add, but um, they're, you know, they might have some attitude problems when it comes to you know, w- what their role actually is. So um, you know, data skills are important, um, this, all this data stuff is important, but so are many other things, and just being a, a data specialist, probably not the way to go. Don't let the bureaucrats get you down. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Isn't there a big part of? I feel like we've had really significant jumps in tooling on the database side to make them more agile. If they'll embrace those tools, exactly. Yeah, the tools are definitely there. Um, you know, you know, and, and and the tools are getting better. But um, you know, without a doubt, you know, the last couple of years 
we've had some pretty significant improvements in uh, in database tooling. Um, now, now the issue becomes is are they willing to adopt them? Are they willing to start actually um, working in a disciplined, more mature manner? Um, because the bureaucracy that they that they seem to prefer isn't getting the job done. Right. Well, it's like they're still mainframe guys. Some of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's just they they. I think it's, you know, in many ways, it's a, it's a, it's a lack of thought leadership in that community. Um, they, they really missed the boat when it came to iterative development in the, in object development in the early 90s. And they pretty much missed it again when it came to agile. And so they're, they're just so far behind now that, um, and they've missed, you know, these, these leaps in productivity and in quality, um, that, you know, it's the, they've got a pretty big mountain to climb now, um, just to get caught up to where everybody else is. So, they, they really did go off in left field. They get to be a warning to others. <laughs> Don't let yeah. this happen to you. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate, but that seems to be the way it is. Scott, this has been an awesome hour. It's just flown by, and thanks for all your hard work on this. Um, and, uh, oh, my pleasure. I hope we can all use it to, to help our processes improve, especially when, when uh, those scaling factors kick in. Definitely. Well, thanks. I uh, appreciate the time, and hopefully... Uh, I'll talk to you talk to you folks again sometime. Thanks, Scott, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a. Uh...